Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain a leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Today I want to talk a little bit about innovation and contentment versus anxiety, which kind of leads to an emotional and spiritual and and actually a productive level paralysis. We don't get much done when we're sitting around being anxious and worrying. Last week, I gave reference to a time when I'd gone through a great time of anxiety in my life, and I was starting to recount to the Lord all the times that he had failed me. The Lord just really spoke to my heart, when did I ever fail you? And I raised my hand to you know start to point it out to him. I was having a kind of an angry prayer session. I began to realize that the Lord has really never failed, and sometimes I've failed to acknowledge what he's done in my life and what he's able to do. And so the change really needs to come about with me before he's going to do anything to respond in a way that I would like. You know, as a very, very, very young person, I memorized Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 33. And, you know, it says there not to worry about what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. It says that these are things that people who don't believe worry about. And, you know, sometimes I think that I'm the person who doesn't believe. You know, I believe in Jesus for my salvation. But I'm not sure if I believe in him for next month's rent, that kind of a deal. And it says that our Heavenly Father knows that we have need of all these things. Somehow there's an interchange going on here where he's asking us to trust in him. And the more that we trust in him, well, the more that he's going to be able to respond to us and bless us. The problem is that sometimes I just don't trust him all that much. It says that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all the things that we're looking for are going to be added to us. I did learn this. As a a young adult, I, I got a job that I didn't deserve, investments that I kind of made mistakes over. It turned out really well. It just seemed like wherever I was going, whatever it was I was doing, the Lord was coming alongside me and, and, and making things better than I was able to make them myself. Yet I still, you know, all these years later, having seen a lot go under the bridge, a lot of, I guess, success in ministry, a lot of things that... I can enjoy looking back over, I still fight worry and anxiety. And I find that it is just the opposite of a faith-filled wonder, which leads to kind of creative and innovative leadership. The kind of things that I really want to have happen are held up by my own inability to trust the Lord, my own fear and and tendency to worry. You know, I I think that I've been a worrier all my life. In fact, I wonder if somehow it is it runs in my family. I mean, I know it runs in my family. I wonder how it's communicated from generation to generation. You know, my great-grandfather, who I was named after, raised my dad. My, my dad's parents divorced in the early in the 1920s when people didn't get divorces in America. And, and he was raised until he was like 14 years old by his grandfather, my great-grandfather. And I, I used to really love my great-grandfather. The guy would tell me stories about his family coming out in the Oregon Trail and uh, he had been an old-time Western sheriff, but driving around in a Model T, probably resting drunks was most of the action that he saw. However, he had lost a really large cattle ranch in the Depression. In 1929, when the big thing hit, uh, it took out banks, and that took him out. 
And he spent the rest of his life without a whole lot. He had enough. I mean, we'd go stay at his house. He had enough to get by, but he certainly wasn't the wealthy man that he'd been. And, you know, I, I think that somehow that got passed on to my dad because my dad actually lived through that. He was living with him at the time that that all happened. And then my father, when he was uh, 14 years old, freshman in high school, moved from the country in eastern Oregon, the ranch country and all that, to the big city of Portland, Oregon, to live with his mom and sister. And when he got there, he found that his mom didn't have room for him. And the Depression was, you know, full bore, and uh, they were hurting real bad financially. And my dad was kind of left to fend for himself as a ninth grader. And he got a job, always told me about this job that he had where he worked with a mentally ill guy, was kind of a caretaker at night for the man. And he said numerous times he would wake up with a guy trying to strangle him to death in the middle of the night. He had a pretty rough time at a time when he actually should have been out playing sports and, you know, basically just being a kid. Uh, he was having to make his own way and work just to earn the money to survive, let alone to go to high school. He would tell me stories about walking six miles one way on Sunday afternoons, hoping that his friend, his parents, would invite him into the house and go stand on the street corner in front of their house for a couple of hours. And sometimes they would invite him in. Usually they wouldn't. He was hoping for a hot meal. And... My dad was a person who kind of worried about money ever since I ever knew him until the day he died. And somehow he passed that on to me. And though I have seen the Lord do really wonderful things in my life and bless me in some pretty unusual ways, I, I think this kind of anxiety that just hung over my family led to a sense of just there's never enough. You know, whatever it is that you have, whatever it is that God is doing, uh, whatever it is that's been a great victory a week or so ago, Somehow isn't enough now. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter the, the disciple-making continuum, how many people are involved in that. It doesn't matter the size of the leadership base in the church. It doesn't matter the, the finances. It doesn't matter what attendance is. And it doesn't matter about my personal finances. Whatever it is, there's a sense of, of, of discontent. It's just not quite enough. We've just, just had a little bit more. And I don't know what a little bit more would even get us because the truth is God has always taken care of me all of my life and, and taken care of me in ways that I would readily admit that I don't deserve. It's just worry. And worry is a form of, you know, faulty thinking, maybe even mental illness. I'm not sure. But, you know, we can make some choices in these kind of matters and, and choices about how we think about God and, and how we think about our circumstances. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, we're told, um, be very careful how you live, not as unwise or foolish people, but making the most of every opportunity. And it says the days are evil, the days are dark. And, you know, I, I think about this, that, you know, we live in a time when there's great tumult in our country, there's great division in our country. Uh, people seem to be falling away from the church. They are falling away from the church, falling away from the gospel. These are difficult times, and, and we're told, be careful. You know, don't live as, as foolish people. Live as wise people. In the message translation, it says it this way. It says, watch your step. Use your head. Make the most of every chance that you get. These are desperate times. Watch your step. Watch where you're going. Watch how you're thinking. Watch your emotions. Watch your responses to God in the middle of whatever is going on around you. And then it says, use your head. In other words, make choices to govern the way that you're going to think about the world that you live in. And then it says, make the most of every chance that you get. And here's where I think that worry or faith is going to lead to paralysis or innovation, creativity, freedom. 
excitement, all the things that we're looking for. And so it comes down to me choosing how I'm going to respond to the world around me. Me choosing to look at what God has done rather than to look at what I wish he would have done. Um, you know, I, I need to just find myself a little bit more often looking at the Lord and and the things that he has done and rejoicing in those things. And oftentimes I just wallow in worry. And, and so it comes on to me to be thinking about Am I looking at this thing correctly? Am I looking at this from a paradigm that says that God supplies or a paradigm that says that God doesn't supply enough because the one's going to liberate me, the other is going to imprison me? I want to push this a step further. And um, this is something I kind of dis- discovered the other day. I was reading my Bible in the morning and praying, and I kind of stumbled into this scripture. And it, I'm not one that usually thinks in these terms, but I, I felt this was really important. And The idea of praising God for what he's already done, not just acknowledging what he's done, but praising him for what he's done, somehow apparently frees him to do more. In Psalm 67, verse 5, it says, May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. And then it says this, Then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. Now, if you really kind of take that apart, it's kind of an if-then statement. And the word if isn't in there where the word then is. In other words, if the people praise the Lord, then these things are going to happen. And that means you and me. If we praise the Lord, if we honor the Lord for what he's done, then he's going to do the two things that it says, at least in the scripture, that the land is going to yield a harvest and the Lord our God will bless us. And, you know, I wonder if this praise and worship at this point actually becomes a kind of a form of permission giving. I wonder if my worries and my fears and my refusal to trust in the Lord, very much like that of the Israelis as they were marching through the desert and they uh, refused to trust him over food and water and all the provisions. And, and God was angered at their unbelief. It wasn't overt acts of immorality. I mean, surely they had those, but the scripture rails against their unbelief. And I find myself very much identifying with these people from time to time and realizing it's a clear choice that I need to make, that I'm going to stop, pause, take a breath, look around, see what God has done, and honor him for what he's done. And I think that what the scripture is communicating to us here is that that somehow gives him permission to enter into my life and into my circumstance and to do more of what it is that he intends to do all along. You know, we come to the Lord through belief and through trust and through faith in him. We walk by faith, not by sight. And yet so often I find myself just kind of spending my time locking God out of my life. I mean, that's really what it kind of gets down to. And when I found this scripture in Psalms, you know, I'm a pretty old man. And to be discovering new things from the Bible is kind of an interesting adventure for me. But when I found this the other day, I was thinking, gosh, you know, how, how often I've just kind of imprisoned myself and I shut the doors of my life to the blessing of God because I refuse to thank him for the things that he has already done. You know, this whole idea of thankfulness and contentedness versus the worry and discontent that so often I feel. In linking this up a little bit further, I one of my favorite passages of scripture is in Philippians, the fourth chapter, where Paul talks about God meeting our needs. And But there's this one little verse that I want to lift out of there where he says, it's not that I was ever in need. He's talking to the church at Philippi and and thanking them for what 
they've given to him and and um, you know actually I think asking for more but he says it's not that I was ever in need for I have learned to be content with whatever I have it's kind of a couplet there I wasn't really in need sometimes I thought I was in need but I wasn't really in need and I stepped over the threshold and learned the joy of being content with what I have and my takeaway from this is that we need to learn to practice contentment that it's not a natural inborn behavior it's something that we have to cultivate, that we have to uh, choose. It's something that we have to inculcate in our life. You know, learning contentment, it, it just comes back. You know, I'm broken record today saying the same things over and over. It comes back to learning to do something with what God has already supplied rather than to do nothing because I'm worried that he hasn't supplied enough. Contentment doesn't come naturally. We live in a society that in fact, kind of, if anything, breeds a, almost an envy and a, a jealousy in everything that we do. It pelts us with advertisements about things that are supposed to make us into more of a person than we are. But, you know, in the end, having a luxury car and having an economy car pretty much gets you the same place in the same amount of time. A $20 Timex is going to keep time as well as a $9,000 Rolex. When I was in high school, I was a nutcase over clothes. I grew up without a lot of wealth, and, um, you know, when everybody else had Levi's, I had, I don't know, whatever they were, but they were the, you know, the, the store brand jeans, and you know, it's kind of my deal, and I get into high school, and I got a job, and I earned a little bit of money, and and I, I start buying shirts, you know, and I went to an all-boy high school. It was a science and math school, and there were like 1,800 students, and one day I woke up to realize I had I had just this closet full of shirts. Every time I'd get paid, I'd go buy another shirt. And if I saw somebody who had a shirt that I liked, I I run out and you know have to have whatever it was that they had. Just fueling the fires of discontent in my life constantly. And but what was going on at a deeper level was I was comparing myself to these guys. It's like I didn't somehow live up to them because they had a nicer shirt than I did. And then I go out and I buy the shirt, and it would never fulfill whatever it was that was looking to be fulfilled in my life. And, and I've just come to this place where I, I realize that fulfillment is really only going to come from being at peace with God. But when I'm at peace with God, it opens the door for God to do more things in my life and for me to do things more productively with the time that I have and with the resources that I have. And so I want to be this person who who learns and and cultivates this idea of contentment. To me, it's all about attitude. It's about learned behavior. In the end, it pays off with a certain kind of a satisfaction. You know, Paul wrote to young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he says, Now, godliness with contentment is a great gain. You know, there's been times where I've just kind of sat down and tried to meditate on that scripture, try to soak in it. You know, what does it mean to be a godly person? What does it mean to be a godly person who is content with my lot in life? Who I am, where I am, what God's called me to do, the goodness, the graces that he's put into my life. And and so godliness with contentment is great gain. And it's talking about gain in almost in the sense that it would be talking about an interest or a dividend that you you got on some stock that you invested in, that you got ahead because you somehow managed to find that place of godliness that's coupled with contentment. And then he goes on and says, we brought nothing into this world, 
and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. I mean, we came in the world naked and we're going out of the world, uh, maybe wearing some clothes, but we're not taking much else with us. And then he says, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. And then he says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. When I'm talking to pastors and Christian leaders, I doubt that I'm talking to people who really are in love with money. You know, I think that a little bit of that haunts us all one way or another, but we're in love with numbers. Take a look at the Great Commission and then look at the great falling away that's going on in America right now. And there's this angst that's set up that is probably a holy and a godly thing that we we could be doing more. We should be doing more. We need to reach more people, whatever. But then somehow that, that can turn into a, a, a lust, a prideful lust that I, I'm going to have, I'm going to be in the top 100 or I'm going to be in the 50 fastest, you know, those kinds of things. And and then we, we sort of lust after a sort of a notoriety that is anything but godliness coupled together with contentment. And so as I end this thing today, I, I'm an older guy talking to mostly younger people. Usually wherever I go, I'm the oldest guy in the room these days. And having been there, done that, been there ahead of you, done it a long time ago, the one thing that I would really encourage everybody is don't get caught up in this this we need more we haven't enough whatever thing that goes on that that drives us sometimes to people make compromise their character they compromise their ethics they compromise their identity in the name of serving the lord because we've got to have more we've got to have more we've got to have more learn the lesson that godliness with contentment is great gain godliness with contentment is going to free you up to a place where you can experience creativity Godliness with contentment is going to cause you to go, what am I supposed to do with what the Lord gave me here? And you're going to find yourself a different kind of a leader than if you're the kind of leader who's basically sitting around wallowing in a stew of misery because you don't think that you have what you would really like to have or whatever God owed you or whatever would be enough. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmoore.net.